0: Welcome to Episode 42, Dialectical Behavior Therapy Mindfulness Skills Module, a Preview by Patricia Gieselman, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist, from Clearly Clinical. Learn. Grow. Shine. Welcome. Patricia Gieselman here in the... uh state of California. I'm a marriage and family therapist. And today we're going to talk about one of the um, DBT dialectical behavior therapy um, skills modules. Uh, we're going to talk about the mindfulness skill, uh, mindfulness skills. So uh, DBT skills are an integral part of a full comprehensive DBT program. And I'm going to try and just give you the flavor of what um, skills group participants in, in a DBT skills class would cover in, a, um, in their six weeks of mindfulness. Mindfulness is the core skill used in DBT because we have to be present and mindful in order to use the other um, DBT skills. Uh, It's one of four modules, mindfulness, again, the core skills. And then you have distress tolerance skills, uh, interpersonal effectiveness skills, and emotion regulation skills. As everything else in dialectic behavior therapy, things go back and forth across a dialectical continuum. The primary dialectic in DBT is acceptance of a person and myself, just as exactly the way that we are, and the change side is at the other end of the dialectic. There are two DBT skills modules on the acceptance side, mindfulness and distress tolerance, and two on the change side, interpersonal effectiveness and emotion regulation. So today we're going to look at the acceptance side and look at the mindfulness module. Mindfulness is taught... Uh, for two weeks between each of the modules. So for example, it doesn't really matter what order the skills modules go in. Uh, kind of depends on the group you're working with. Uh, but to begin with, you'd have two weeks of mindfulness. and then you would have five, six weeks of another module, then two weeks of mindfulness, then six weeks or so of the next module, and so on. So you'd repeat that. So every between each other, Uh, DBT skills module, you're going to get kind of a refresher course on mindfulness. We have to be able to be present in order to be able to use all of the other skills. Mindfulness is totally an acceptance skill. It's about really knowing what is present, what is right here, what is right now, what not what we wish was or should be. So this is a difficult skill and an easy skill. (laughs) It's like uh, some of us live in, in kind of a mindless state sometimes, Probably all of us have kind of gotten to work and not realized how we got there. This is the opposite of that. That's being fully present and awake. So, what is mindfulness? Let's look at a couple of definitions. John Kabat-Zinn, who is a an American mindfulness master, and has done some great work about mindfulness-based stress reduction and pain reduction um, over many years, well-researched. His definition is mindfulness means paying attention in a particular way, on purpose in the present moment and non-judgmentally. Uh, Marsha Linehan, who is the developer and author of Dialect Behavior Therapy, in her DBT skills training manual, the second edition, uh, which is the one that we're going to be uh, operating from, it has much more uh, content and detail than the 1993 version that some of you may have gotten a long time ago. So I encourage you uh, get the, the skills training manual as well as the worksheet and handout uh, accompanying manual. So the, uh, in the, the definition she offers in the skills training manual for, that has all the notes and teaching, teaching uh, lessons for DBT skills, she gives this definition and explanation of what mindfulness is. Mindfulness is the act of consciously fo- focusing the mind in the present moment, without judgment, and without attachment to the moment. When mindful, we are aware in and of the present moment. We can contact mindfulness with automatic, or we can contrast, I'm sorry, we can contrast mindfulness with automatic, habitual, or rote behavior and activity. When mindful, we are alert and awake like a sentry guarding a gate. And then she goes on to describe mindfulness practice as the repeated effort of bringing the mind back to awareness of the present moment without judgment and without attachment. It includes, therefore, the repeated effort of letting go of the judgments and letting go of the attachments of current thoughts, emotions, sensations, activities, events, and life situations. So the concept is repeated repeatedly bringing our attention to the present moment, out of the past, out of the future, and to really fully be in the present. Um, You can find these definitions on page 151 and 152 of the um, DBT Skills Training Manual if you're interested and if you want to look into more detail. That teacher guide, uh, the manual that goes along with the handouts and worksheets for this edition, are, are quite... Uh, detailed, and really provide you with a lot of teaching examples, um, definitions, understandings, uh, really, really awesome stuff. So I encourage you, I I really want to pique your curiosity and see if I can get you to go take a look at that stuff. So that's part of what I'm about. Okay. In the work I do in our practice, which is Choices Counseling and Skills Center, which is a a private DBT uh, practice, in sierra madre california which is kind of next door to uh, pasadena Um, we offer several types of skills group all of them teach the same four skills modules the multi-family groups which are for adolescents and their families sometimes we use uh, alec miller's version of the the skills depending on how old the the kids are and there's also a version in the new skills manual that that Marsha Linehan did, that offers an adolescent version. So there's some good things, but DBT skills are DBT skills. And they don't really get modified much. The examples get changed. But we're trying to teach the same four uh, uh, skill groupings. So the goal of mindfulness module is we want to teach and focus on, quote, doing what works in the moment, and keep us on our path toward our long-term life worth living goals. Uh, some of you may already know this, but in the assessment period before a person even goes into skills group, we have a three to four week assessment period where a couple of things happen. Uh, in our program, we have an introduction to DBT skills uh, group, which offers them the expectations of skills group, The talks about dialectics, talks about behaviorism, Uh, those kinds of things and at the same time an individual dbt uh, assessment you're looking at them identifying their life worth living goals what problems are getting in their way of getting to those life worth living goals and specific what we call target behaviors that the client has control over that he or she is willing to increase or decrease specific behaviors Uh, stage one behaviors be biting kicking Suiciding, suicide communication, self harm, um, uh, substance use that's severe. Um, anyway, those kinds of things. So, discrete behaviors that we're looking to increase, they're willing to uh, target and commit to decrease or increase in order to get those problems out of the way so they can get to their life worth living goals. So, that happens before that commitment to the life worth living goals, target behaviors happens before a participant comes into group so they come in already having things that they're going to be working on to apply all of the skills so staying mindful is really important to kind of keep our eye on the ball and know where we're headed and and be able to have the individual therapist help coach us to as as clients to be able to apply all of these skills to the target behaviors we're committed to to changing so um another purpose is to participate fully in each moment with awareness. It's uh, kind of like walking through life with your eyes open instead of with your eyes closed. To increase acceptance and compassion for self and others and to reduce do suffering. I think a lot of people who come to therapy for whatever reason have difficulty with self-compassion sometimes as much as they do with compassion for others. And another purpose is to reduce suffering so mindfulness is what it's become more aware to become more intentional to set an intention and then follow the intention to decide where I want my mind to go for a particular purpose and be able to direct it there and keep it there or if I go away from there to come back from there and mindfulness is also becoming more curious and less judgmental about what is Um, just please know anytime you say something should or shouldn't be, you're, you're really not fully accepting what is. You're you're saying, yeah, it is, but I, I'm more focused on what it should be or what what it shouldn't be. So we all do that, and it's about learning to be aware of it. That's one of the things mindfulness helps. Mindfulness is not, by the way, relaxation. Some people think mindfulness exercise is for the function of relaxing. It's not. Um, Although you you might feel really relaxed, it's kind of a lovely side effect, but it's not the purpose. Mindfulness is not being spacey or zoned out. It's not escaping from reality. It's quite the opposite. And it's certainly not having it all together or having no emotions. Now, as I'm teaching these things to you, I want you to know that as a clinician, everything we're teaching the clients around mindfulness applies to you as well. If you're gonna be effective as a clinician, the idea of being fully present with our clients, um, you know, that's you know, like very commonly known as your learning counseling practices, that you have to be present. You have to be connected. You have to be authentic. So the more you practice mindfulness, the more you're aware of whether you're in the room or out of the room, whether your thoughts are, are out there figuring out what's going to happen after work or worrying about another client that you had just seen so to be able to keep bringing yourself back to the client you're with, to the, to the task at hand. So practicing mindfulness as a um, personal and professional skill for any therapist is certainly advisable. Um, in DBT, um, if you're going to be a DBT clinician, there's an expectation that you have some kind of a uh, experience with mindfulness uh, practice with having been to some mindfulness classes or or retreats and to know that that's part of your life because we have to first of all know what we're asking other people to do and to be able to practice it enough that we can model it. So I really encourage you to look at mindfulness with or without DBT as a really important practice for your your professional work your health uh, reducing distress and improving your relationships. So there's two types of practices in mindfulness, and as Dr. Linehan calls them, it's opening the mind or focusing the mind. Uh, We'll we'll be practicing both as we're learning this. Opening the mind is observing and noticing whatever comes into view or awareness. For example, uh, if you're sitting in a coffee shop and just sipping your coffee or tea, you're watching, mindfully watching people walk by. Well, you're there just noticing and then letting go of them to observe the next person who comes along. So my mind is open to what's right in front of me, what is right present. Another example is watching the train cars go by as you're, you're waiting for a, a train to pass on the track, observing each one as it comes by and letting go of watching it and seeing the one that is right in front of you. So that's opening the mind. There's lots of examples, by the way, in the in the manuals. Focusing the mind is placing your attention on one specific internal or external experience or event. For example, uh, to focus on the sensations of your feet on the floor or focus on a particular mantra that has been decided upon before the exercise. Uh, an example is... Um, uh, Sometimes the instruction I will give in a mindfulness exercise. By the way, we do mindfulness exercises at the beginning of every skills group, uh, no matter which module we're teaching. Um, I do mindfulness practice at the beginning of every DBT team, consult team meeting every week. I do mindfulness practice at the beginning of every staff meeting and certainly every training that I do and mindfulness also with a lot of individual therapy sessions and that's not just for the client that's for me um, sometimes my head goes off planning something for the future or maybe i've had a really difficult session with the previous client that just left i may need a little time of mindfulness practice to get myself fully present in the room with the client who I'm now with the clients also come to us sometimes and they may be struggling with their emotions they may be struggling with traffic all kinds of things that we want them to be able to let go of and come to the moment so we do mindfulness practice a lot even though we only teach it between the other skills mon- man, um, modules excuse me between the other skills modules um, If you take a look at the mindfulness section in Dr. Linehan's uh, skills training handouts and worksheets, that second edition, and the accompanying DBT skills training manual, you can see how the lessons are laid out and taught for two weeks between each of the other skills modules of distress tolerance, emotion regulation, and interpersonal effectiveness. Now, there's a lot more material available than you you can teach in a single mindfulness module. Often... um, Some members, maybe they're in their second round of mindfulness or maybe a a group has become kind of mature and have been together for a while. You can use other examples, go a little deeper, offer a few more mindfulness lessons um, than uh, just the basic ones. But we're going to start today with kind of just going through the basic uh, mindfulness skills that I would teach during that two-week mindfulness module between each of the other modules. I really want to pique your interest. Obviously, we can't cover all we would in six two-hour lessons of of, uh, mindfulness during a six-month or 24-week round of of, uh, skills modules. So go get yourself some more training to become better acquainted with material. Um, Hopefully, this will pique your interest. Okay, so there are seven mindfulness skills. Uh, in the mindfulness module. The first one is basically how we kind of lay out how the, the the emotion works in the mind. It's called three states of mind. We have emotion mind on one extreme, reasonable rational mind on the other extreme, and then the synthesis of those two. If you can see uh, circles that kind of cross over each other, that place in the middle where wise mind and reasonable mind come together creates what uh dr linehan calls wise mind now wise mind is the synthesis of emotion and reason both of those parts of our mind are really really important it's not one is good and one is bad or one is right and one is wrong it's we we all of those parts are essential we're we're simply seeking a middle path rather than either extreme dominating the way we think, feel, or behave. So, um, and we'll talk about some of those pieces. So both emotion mind or reasonable mind can get our way of using wise mind or what other ways to put it is inner wisdom. Often that ability to get in touch with our own wisdom depends on what state of mind we're in. Um, I don't know if any of you have ever been terribly, terribly upset about something and you're having all kinds of thoughts about how this shouldn't be this way and how you've been wronged and how it's unfair. We're kind of operating from emotion mind when we're there. Uh, Any decisions we make based on that are going to be way tempered or way influenced is a better word by our emotions uh, rather than our reason. If we go all the way to the other end, then we're not going to be dominated by emotion We we dominated by reason. So the thing to know is that what we think, feel, or do can be very, very different depending on our state of mind. If I'm pleased that I've been given an opportunity to teach a class, my experiencing of that, my thinking, my feeling, and even the actions I take can be very different if somebody says patty i want you to come teach this class that you don't want to teach so it would it would change that because my state of mind may be different i would have to change my state of mind in order to be at peace with that decision so let's go a little bit deeper here um emotion mind uh, that's the extreme pole of this you're in hot your emotions are hot you're, you're uh experiencing your sense sensations are a little hotter than when you're in a a cool um, reasonable place Uh, your thinking may be mood dependent and that's coming from emotion focused mind so in there completely when you're completely on the edge of that you're ruled by moods emotions and of course urges to do or say things (laughs) related to those emotions so uh, we know after we get into the emotion regulation section of the skills that every emotion has a different action urge associated with it, and we'll be you'd be learning about that in the emotion regulation section. So the one of the urges that the the urges that comes from inside the brain. We don't sit there and think, "I'm angry. What urge should I have?" The brain already is reset. So if I'm angry, my urge may be to attack or to to try and get you to stop doing what you're doing or to stop blocking my path or my thoughts or my things I want to say. You know, if I'm in, um, if I'm sad, my urges are to cry, to maybe get silent, to maybe seek help. So it's, it's, those things are built in and we just need to know that. So. In Emotion Mind, the thing you'll find out is that everything feels impulsive and urgent. People forget that, that urge is part of the word urgency, which is kind of an urge emergency, which means I have an urge and I want to do it now, now, now. It's not like something I, I, I want to wait on. So uh, facts, reason, and logic right now in this moment are really not so important at the extreme. So you're operating kind of from your right brain only. And this is the part of your mind where emotions live. Anger, sadness, fear, jealousy, happiness, envy, love, disgust, shame, guilt. All of those things. Those families. You know, there's lots and lots of emotions within those families. That's just the sets of 10 families that that DBT looks at, other types of therapies, think there are six families and other think there are three. It's okay, we just use that's just how we do it. So, as Dr. Linehan in our DBT skills training manual says, emotion mind is your state of mind when your emotions are in control and are not balanced by reason. Emotions control your thinking and your behavior, and when you're completely in emotion mind, you're ruled by your moods, your feelings, and those urges. So think of some time when emotions have gotten in the way of acting wisely in the moment for you. Uh, I can certainly think of several. So just think about those times that, you know, big emotions showed up. And I don't know if you've ever you know, been in an argument or, or somebody was upset with you and you felt wrongly accused. And I don't know anything like that um, or maybe really in love. You know, you've got a, a new a new squeeze that you're just really excited about and you really don't know them very well. So there's not a whole lot of reason mind going on. But, you know, you just you know, you just in love and there's pixie dust everywhere. And that's maybe your decisions at that time would be based on emotion rather than reason or a synthesis of those things. So there's some vulnerabilities too as hum- human beings and actually as mammals that get in our way of uh not getting caught in emotion mind. Um, Some of the factors that make us vulnerable to emotion mind include more of, of, um, I'm thinking of the 12-step programs uh, state that they they talk about for being at risk of substance use. Uh, One of the things they call it is halt, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. And all of us are more at risk for operating from emotion mind when we are, when our vulnerabilities are up. When we're hungry, angry, lonely, tired, sick, um, not hydrated, uh, over overstressed, lack of sleep, substance use, not eating well, too many demands and stressors in the moment, threats to our well uh, things like, you know, risks and relationships, housing problems, employment, um, Struggles or fears. So those things can all make us more vulnerable to being in emotion mind. Let's talk about, let's go to the other side and talk about what are the benefits of emotion. Well, intense love fuels relationships. Intense devotion and desire motivates us to do very difficult things or sacrificing for others. Um, If you guys are listening to this this, uh, podcast, some of you are probably either in graduate school or, you know, in a, uh, intern or associate position or even licensed. So probably you've had to figure out how to get all the way through a master's degree or a PhD program. And I, I know there were certainly moments for me that my intense desire to get the goal kept me going, kept me motivated when it was very difficult to do. Um, you know, as a parent, I've got four, four grown children. And as a parent, I sacrificed things for them because it was necessary to do so and important to do so. So I may not have otherwise. So it's like really intense devotion or desire or love can, can help us do very difficult things. So, and that requires emotion. Um, passion for our beliefs and causes and other people can change cultures. You know, for example, fighting to stop oppression. Those are things that require emotion and passion. If you want, just again, to keep you curious, take a look at the Nobel Peace Prize website for some of the acceptance speeches to hear some of that passion where people have very strong beliefs, very strong passion, are able to use that emotion to peacefully resolve uh, things on our on our earth. So it's good examples of how motion mind mixed with reason mind coming from from uh, a place of wise mind, good stuff can happen, important stuff can happen. So, okay, let's talk about some of the problems with emotions. When emotions take control or are not as effective, kind of like, when the results of acting on our motion is positive in the moment, but is highly problematic results in the long run. Um, drugs and alcohol are really good examples. Um, being angry and, and yelling at somebody, giving them a stop is another example because emotion takes control and it can be very reinforcing or effective in the moment, but not toward the long term. Um, Problems when the emotion experience don't match the facts. So I may be operating totally on an interpretation of a situation without taking the facts into consideration. And that leads to um, what we call unintended consequences sometimes because all that action was misplaced. Or when an emotion state leads to really painful consequences or events. So those are problems with emotions one more thing that's important to look at is what's the difference between strong emotion and emotion mind we don't want to confuse strong emotion with emotion mind uh dr linden says emotion mind is what occurs when emotions are in control at the expense of reason Um, examples of intense emotions people can have without losing control holding my beautiful newborn grandson in my arms for the first time uh that that was just i wasn't out of control and it didn't let go of, of reason, but it just, it's just, it was intensity, but wasn't out of control. Uh, maybe finding out that a dear friend has passed away suddenly. And those are intense emotions, but not ones that are totally out of control necessarily. So these examples would only be emotion mind if the emotion took over from reasonable behavior and particularly effectiveness. If we go to the other end and look at reasonable mind, that's the extreme end of reason. It's a cool rational mind. It's governed by facts, logic, rules. Values and emotions are not so important at the extreme. It's kind of just the facts. You're not feeling about it. You're not intuiting about it. It's just the facts. Examples there are building bridges, mathematics, Doing, doing math, doing engineering, map reading. So some benefits of reason. That part of us can plan coolly, um, manage our time, evaluate situations logically. Now, some of the problems with reason at the extreme is reason can be cold and insensitive to emotions, concerns, needs, passion, or other aspects of, of human emotions. So, when in total reasonable mind or rational mind, whatever you want to call it, we can't ignore our emotions or ignore the emotions of people we care about because we can become so focused on a task. Hence, perhaps doing some damage to those relationships or giving people the impression that we're not as interested in them as we are on a task. It's really hard to maintain a quality relationship without acknowledgement of your emotions, or sometimes when we treat others' emotions as important, it creates distance. Now, this is true for home, social, work environments, our professional clinical environments, certainly, our relationship with our clients, our relationship with our team members. DBT is a, um, a team treatment so we work very closely together. Uh, I may be the individual DBT therapist for one of our clients, and someone else on our team may be one of the skills trainers. Uh, in in skills training, we have two skills trainers in every skills group. For a lot of reasons, uh, some of them are for safety. Some are so that you you can have a different set of eyes in the room to see how people are responding to the material, and to be able to make. Better examples or whatever is needed. So um, we have to be aware of our, of our relationships and make sure we're not so focused on the task that we don't see that peripheral uh, response from other people that's around us. You know, kind of that in other treatments, they call it taking in the other, uh, being aware of, of those other relationships. Okay, let's go to Wise Mind. Now, this is the synthesis of reason and emotion. Now, a synthesis, excuse me, a synthesis becomes greater than the parts of either side. It takes on another piece that's greater than either reason or emotion. And in Wise Mind, we see the value of both ends. It facilitates taking a middle path, kind of brings left brain and right brain together. Uh, One of the the quotes out of the manual from Dr. Linehan is, you cannot overcome emotion mind with reasonable mind, nor can you create emotions with reasonableness. You must go within and bring the two together. So it's not a right, wrong kind of a deal. It's a synthesis. The other thing that your clients will need to know in DBT, because oftentimes our clients doubt themselves, Everyone has the capacity for using wise mind or inner wisdom. Uh, just like everyone has a heart, we're not always thinking about our heart beating, but we all have a heart. We may not be attending to it, but we all have a heart. So the letting everybody know and cheerleading them that they, they do have, have the ability and capacity for wise mind. Wise mind includes the ability to select and use skillful means to do what works. The um, sixth or the, the third how skill is effectively in the mindfulness skills. So it's about doing what works and we kind of have two meanings for effectiveness. When we'll get over there, we'll look at that in, in the, the mindfulness skills. It's like do what works in the moment and keeps me on my path to my long-term goals not either or so sometimes it really helps us apply common sense and the experience that we've had from past mistakes or past successes to do things differently or to do things again in ways that are effective Um, some of you in your um, counseling uh, classes may have heard of rollo may He had a brother named Gerald May who knew I didn't until I read this quote, but Gerald May in 1982 said this about about wise minds. Kind of like it. Wisdom, wise mind, or wise knowing depends on the integration of all ways of knowing something. Knowing by observing, knowing by analyzing logically, knowing by what we experience in our bodies, knowing by what we do, and knowing by intuition. That's Gerald May, 1982. Nice statement. So here we go to how do we get to wise mind? Uh, it requires practice over and over, and we really want to do it before we need it for the big game. So when we're practicing in skills, we practice mindfulness every single week, trying to get to the example of getting to wise mind. So here's an example. Just a, This is an example I use with, um, I think, I used this with middle schoolers when we were teaching the three states of mind. So emotion mind, which is emotion only, uh, the the example was, I missed my ride to school. So here's Billy. He missed his ride to school. Emotion mind says, I'm angry at myself, saying, I'm so stupid. Miss Beasel is mean. She should have waited for me. I'm mad at her for not waiting. That's emotion mind. Reason, I'm just examining. There can be other answers. This is just, you know, one example to use. Next one is reasonable mind. There's no emotion. And here we go. Billy says to himself, Well, in order to obtain transportation from Mrs. Beasle, I am required to be waiting curbside at exactly 7 04 AM. I was leaving my room at 7 04 AM. Of course I missed my ride. It's only logical. So there's old enough member Star Trek. There's kind of Spock. Wise mind example of that situation is I did miss my ride to school and I'm disappointed. I can take a city bus and get there just a few minutes late. I'm a good problem solver and willing to take the tardy ticket as a consequence. So here's a lovely synthesis of emotion and reason. It was interesting when I was teaching this to to kids. They kept wanting to make wise mind actually be reasonable mind. They they thought I've got to get rid of my emotion in order to be in wise mind. But this example says, no, I don't have to get rid of my emotion. I have to acknowledge and be aware I'm disappointed. I did miss my ride. Reasonable mind says, how can I get there and be late? How can I be a problem solver and take the tardy ticket as a consequence? So I don't have to feel great about it, but I can feel okay about it. So it's the synthesis of emotion and reason. That's just one of the examples we've used that kind of we we'd break kids into groups and have them practice this kind of make it a game so give them several different examples and have them come up with emotion mind reasonable mind and wise minds kind of like a choose your own adventure kind of a thing so that they could really see what would happen depending on what state of mind i was in when i was doing it okay now let's move on to the what and the how skills the what and the how skills are the recipe of how to get to wise mind and uh, the what skills are what you do when practicing mindfulness or being mindful and being in mind mind, and the how skills are how you do the what skills. So the what skills must be done in chronological order. Number one, observe, then describe, then participate. We have to be able to observe first, before we can effectively and accurately describe something, and before we can participate in a way that's effective. So observe, describe, and participate are what we do in one, two, three order. And also, each of those what skills is a separate activity. So you have to practice observing, you have to practice describing and you have to practice participating separately because they're really separate skills. A lot of people have difficulty sorting out observe from describe, but we'll, we'll, we'll get and talk about that. So observe the first what skill is observed, and it's essential in order to use all the other skills of mindfulness. So Dr. Linhan describes, control your attention, but not what you see. Push away nothing, Cling to nothing. An example that's given in the book of Observe is you're laying on a, a blanket out under the stars and the trees and leaves fall on your, the blanket that you're laying on. And it's accepting everything that just comes, just noticing it, observing it, not trying to clean off the blanket or get the leaves to stop falling off the tree. I'm controlling my attention. I'm noticing the leaves, but I'm not trying to control what I see. I'm pushing away nothing, and I'm clinging to nothing. Uh, Here's another one of her examples that I really like. Observing is like walking across a room full of furniture with your eyes open instead of closed. You can walk across the room either way. However, you will be more effective with your eyes open. If you don't like the furniture in the room, you might want to close your eyes. But ultimately, it's not very effective. You keep running into the furniture. So observing keeps us in contact with what is factual, truthful, and real in the moment. It's learning to be present in our current context of our life. Uh, sometimes I use the example that, you know, I'm in today's movie. I'm living in today's movie. Today, the Monday, the whatever date this is. And, but if my brain keeps bringing in the soundtrack of what happened to me five years ago when I was in a similar place as I am here on Monday then I'm not staying with the context of the moment. I keep bringing in in, in, interpretations from the past to apply to the present. Um, When we're observing, we we get to get information from the world to use to make needed changes or to advise us to keep doing what we're doing. A part of that's called learning from our mistakes. So we're able to take in information, apply it to right here and now, and then use it to be effective. Uh, Think of a time when you actually avoided observing reality, Uh, not stepping on the scale, uh, if you know you may need to step on the scale, not taking your blood pressure if you know that's something you need to monitor, procrastinating on a task that uh, you just either don't want to do right now or not sure you can do right now or are insecure about right now, Any unintended consequences show up for you there uh, by by avoiding reality? So this is the opposite. This is observing, noticing what is actually present. Uh, Another way to say it is observing is wordless watching. We observe the world outside of us through our five senses. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching. It's kind of like how a Baby observes the world before they have words. The baby observes with all of their senses. We can observe the world inside of us by noticing our thoughts, our emotions, our body sensations, um, our urges. Um, So um, observing is really training the mind to pay attention. And not necessarily noticing our urges and not necessarily acting on them, just observing the urge. You know, we talked about urges, they they come with every emotion. Um, and and so it's it's urges are gonna be there. We just have to decide whether to act on them or not. So in that Linehan um, skills handouts and worksheets book, there are pages and pages of pages of examples of practicing. Uh, the different mindfulness skills. For example, you've got observing. practice observing. There are 64 practices on four pages, pages 54 through 57. Now, it may give you the impression that Dr. Lennon thinks that practicing observing may be really important for DBT therapists and for DBT um, participants. I'm thinking that may be true. And then we'll move to describing. Describing is what you do second. Remember, you do these in order. It's putting words on the experience that we just noticed, that we observed. Now, we're not talking about putting an interpretation on it or putting meaning on it or putting a motive on it or putting an intention on it. It's just describing it. You know, if I'm describing a cereal bowl, I'm not describing it as, you know, a... a, a, my favorite cereal bowl or a cereal bowl that's ugly or anything like that, because that would be judging it, that would be putting interpretation. So I might be describing it as I'm observing a cereal bowl and that cereal bowl, as I touch it, is cool to the touch. It's white in color, Uh, it will hold liquids. So that's a description and we're, we're really wanting to train people to observe and describe, and we'll jump to the, the how skills and pull in non-judgmentally. If we can observe and describe non-judgmentally, we can be more effective at, at reaching our goal, whatever we're trying to achieve. So there's observe. Let's, let's talk about describing a little bit more. You're putting a label on it. So you can, you can put a label on on your feelings. You can label a thought as just a thought. A feeling as just a feeling and an action is just an action without going down the storyline of what it is. I can just learn to notice. That's a thought going through. That's an interpretation going through. That's a judgment going through. That's an emotion. Let me label the emotion. The emotion is sadness. The emotion is fear. Let me notice. Um, and, and just kind of stay away from your interpretations and your judgments right now. We all have judgments, interpretations, and opinions. They're just not helpful when we're trying to be uh, effective and trying to decide what to do at, at an initial place. We have to be able to observe and describe effectively without judging it or interpreting it or putting a belief on it in order to be able to participate effectively. And even if we're just noticing a judgment, we need to notice. It's a judgment, not necessarily a fact. Uh, that's a big distinction that's really important in teaching. Um, another thing you need to know, you, if you can't observe it through your senses, you can't describe it. So you will never be able to describe what's going on in somebody else's head unless you can experience their brain through the five senses. If you can touch their brain, taste their brain, hear their brain, feel their brain or smell their brain, okay, maybe you can describe it. Think of all the the struggle that we have in our lives because we've decided what somebody else is thinking and then we act on it. We participate on it as if it is a truth. And by the way, the more strongly we interpret something or believe about something, the bigger our emotions get about it and the more true it feels. So we just need to be aware of that. This awareness piece is huge. Participating. That's the third What skill? Participating is throwing yourself completely into the activity of the current moment. If you're dancing, if you're cleaning, if you're talking, if you're experiencing happiness, you're feeling sadness, you're throwing yourself in. Uh, you're not observing yourself from the outside necessarily. You're just throwing yourself in. So, it's becoming one with whatever you're doing. Now, this doesn't mean you you shut out reality on the outside of it. You know, if you're dancing, you you know not to dance out in the middle of the street. In, in moving cars, but I'm, I'm participating. I'm at one with what I'm doing. I'm throwing myself fully in. A lot of times we'll do participation exercises in uh in skills class so that they can learn what, what a participating exercise is. Participating is active intuitively from wise mind. Uh, we do what's needed in a situation. We've been able to ascertain what is needed to be effective in this moment. Uh, it's kind of like a skillful dancer on the dance floor that, that knows the movements will be effective not to step on their partner's feet. You're kind of one with the music. You're one with your partner. Uh, you're You're throwing yourself in. You're not holding back. It's kind of going with the flow. It's kind of like being spontaneous. Now, a lot of people ask me, what's the difference between spontaneity and impulsiveness? And the example I give is, if I'm through with work tonight, and I decide I want to drive to the beach, and um, go have an evening on the pier. I've got time. Uh, I can do that. I've checked to make sure I've got enough gas. I checked with my husband to see if he'd like to go with me or if he's available. Um, I've checked the traffic to see that we can get there in time for dinner, and I and then we spontaneously take off and go to go to the beach. That's spontaneity. Impulsivity is. I decide on my way out the door from work, and I haven't finished all the stuff I need to do, but I've decided I'm going, and I'm going now. It's an urge, and that would be impulsively going to the beach. So I get in the car. I don't check the gas. I don't check to see if my husband has other plans or has other needs of me for that night. I just go and do. So it's kind of like the difference between spontaneity and impulsivity. It's kind of like the difference between um, AWOL, running away, and going on vacation. A vacation is planful. It is. It is. You made sure everything's taken care of. The doors are locked. The cats are fed. And you may leave on vacation very quickly, spontaneity, running away from home. A wall is. I'm leaving with no plan to get back, and not even a plan how to get there. So, good examples on how to do that. So, the um, then you've got in, in this book, you've got pages and pages of practice with. Observing, describing, participating. And now we're going to talk about the how skills. The how skills are how you do the what skills of observing, describing, participating. I'd love to have a piece of paper that you could look at with this. Um, But if you wanted to go look that up, the how skills are on page, uh, let's see. Wise Minds on page 50 of the handouts and worksheets. The the how skills are on page 53 and, I'm sorry, the what skills are on page 53 and the how skills are on page 60. For those of us who kind of need to look at things visually as well as as here, though. So if we look at the how skills, first one's non-judgmentally. We see it, we describe it, but we don't look at it as good or bad. It's just the facts. We don't look at it as right or wrong, we don't look at it as pleasurable, non-pleasurable, we just we just look at it. Um, now non-judgmentally doesn't mean we don't acknowledge the difference between helpful and harmful, between safe and dangerous. We observe and describe that. We just we just don't we just don't judge it. If that's harmful, I'm gonna stay away from it. I'm just not going to judge that it's harmful. Um, if it's safe, I'm going to judge that it's safe and I'm going to participate with it if I choose to. Acknowledging your values, your wishes, acknowledging your emotional reactions to things. Boy, that was a big emotional. That, that Man, that, that reaction to what I just saw really was a giant response to me. That was big. I'm not going to judge it. I'm going to notice it. I may say, you know, out of a five of a, from a subjective units of distress or discomfort, uh, with five being a tsunami and one being meh, so not much emotion at all, I'm going to notice it. Man, I was at a four out of five of anger when I heard that be said. I'm going to notice that. I'm just not going to judge it. And uh, kind of the last point I want to make on this, there's lots more to teach, but one of the last things I want to talk about is when you observe and describe yourself judging, be careful not to judge your judging. Just observe and describe that you're judging and then let it go and go back to observing describing. Just like when we're doing mindfulness practice and we notice ourselves go away to distractions, to thoughts about what we're going to do next, thoughts about, my tummy growling and why I know I'm going to have for lunch. I just notice that and I come on back to the focus that I'm on in my mindfulness practice. So judgments are interpretations, beliefs, motives, what I think you're thinking, uh, and a variety of other things. These, again, we're not judging them. We notice they're there. We just need to know they're not facts. I think the best way to tell the difference between observing and describing and something that is and an interpretation is if there's more than one potential interpretation of what you're looking at it's probably not a fact it's probably an interpretation so you know think about it maybe think about it that way that may be helpful okay the second house skill oh one more thing about the house skills it's what you it's how you do the what skills so Observe is the first what skill. You observe non-judgmentally. You observe one mindfully, which is the next how skill. And you observe effectively, which is the last how skill. So you observe non-judgmentally. You describe non-judgmentally. And you participate non-judgmentally. Same thing with the other two of the what skills. You describe non-judgmentally, you describe one thing at a time, and you describe effectively, and the same thing with participate. You participate non-judgmentally, you participate one thing at a time or one mindfully, and you participate effectively. So you kind of want to just kind of do what you're doing and let everything else go in that moment. By the way, that's the most effective you can be as a therapist is to really be present, only do one thing at a time, if I'm with you as a client or with you as a student or as you as a friend, I'm going to be with you and nowhere else. That's relationship skills right there. So um, do one thing at a time. Notice the desire <laughs> to kind of go think about something else and just gently bring your brain back to that. Uh, when I'm doing one of the mindfulness exercises I use is I it, it involves imaginary post-it notes of different colors. So, um, so I've got my little sticky notes and if I'm, Observing my my breath, and one of my favorite ones is to breathe into the count of five or six, and out to the count of or into the count of four or five and out to the count of uh, six to eight, and just notice any thoughts, emotions, judgments, body sensations, distractions, lists, and I just got different colored imaginary post posting notes, that I go, okay, that was a thought, and I go back to my breathing, that was a judgment, and I go back to my breathing. That was a list, and I go back to my breathing. Without going down the storyline of whatever it is I'm thinking, just notice it and gently and kindly bring myself back from the judgment, the distraction, to my counting. And if I lose track, I just start over. So that's an example of that. So one of the things that um Nahan teaches really well some of this stuff too, and uh, Dr. Linehan does as well, it's like when you're, when you're eating, eat, When you're walking, walk. When you're crying, cry. When you're planning, plan. Just do one thing at a time in order to be effective, which takes us to the last house skill. To be effective, as I said before, you need to keep your mind on what works right now. Uh, One of the lessons of, of effectiveness talks about play by the rules, And sometimes when I work with adolescents, they go, I don't know about that one. It's like, well, play by the rules until you can be a rule changer and then change the rules that you think need to be changed. But it's effective to play by the rules that exist rather than fight the rules that exist. That's kind of like fighting reality. So play by the rules until you've positioned yourself in a place to be a rule changer that maybe you can make. Uh, the system better make the world a better place whatever but figure out how to do that Um, be mindful of your goals of the situation in this situation that i'm in right now what are my goals what do i want to see happen in this maybe i want to have a conversation with a friend who hurt my feelings and i want to be planful and what are my goals in this what's most important to me is it the relationship is it um getting my point across is it my self-respect those would be some of the interpersonal effectiveness goals that we're looking at when we're in that module so really keep my eye on what are my goals in the situation and focus on doing what's going to work and not let emotion mind get in the way of being effective Um, act as skillfully as you can do what's needed for the situation and this is, this is a quote out of the, the training manual that we actually, these are worksheets. This is handout five of mindfulness we actually give to the clients to read. I love this. Act as skillfully as you can. Do what is needed for the situation you're in, not the situation you wish you were in, not the one that is fair, and not the one that is more comfortable. I really like that. It's like, do what works in this moment, And keeps me on my path to my long-term goals. Don't pick a solution that serves you now, but doesn't keep you on your path to your long-term goals, if you can help it. So part of this is about learning from our mistakes and learning how to do it differently. So there's lots and lots of ideas. Again, page 61 and 70 and 71, I'm sorry, 61, 62 and 63 are... All lists of different practices you can do to practice the house skills. So, this kind of gives you an overview of what you would uh, learn, certainly in more detail, in a mindfulness module if you were taking a mindfulness class in DBT. Um, in our program, Choices Counseling and Skills Center in Sierra Madre, we have three adult groups. Uh, we usually have a multi family group where it's It's kids and their parents working together, uh, learning the skills together. Each of them has their own homework, same homework the kid gets, mom, dad gets, caregiver gets, whoever's their primary caregiver, and they have to come to skills with their child. Um, We don't have separate groups for parents and for youth. We kind of follow Alec Miller's model of uh, the multifamily group, and we found it to work really, really well because there's a little bit of accountability partner there as you know kid looks over and go oh mom you didn't do your homework you know or you know we can learn to actually practice and hear hear other families uh as they struggle and as they use their skills so we can learn from each other Uh, it becomes a really good support system uh having the parents and the kids in the same room for us has been really effective so i want to thank you for spending your valuable time with me today um I wish you well in your learning if you decide to learn more about DBT. There's lots of great trainers out there, lots of opportunities to learn, and a real need for DBT clinicians, uh, both across uh, the nonprofit world and the private practice world. So use skillful means, practice. Uh, If you have any questions, you can always get in touch with me. And I thank you for spending your time with me. Have a peaceful rest of your day.